everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the start of hurricane season. Guy Carpenter's Mark Hope shares how hurricane outcomes have changed over time and provides insight on other weather trends impacting our industry. Plus, artificial intelligence. As tools like ChatGPT become more commonplace, what challenges companies need to address to keep employees and customers safe? But first, an update on the Hyundai and Kia vehicle theft saga. The automakers have reached a settlement to resolve a class-action consumer lawsuit prompted by the surge in auto thefts. The settlement, which could cover up to 9 million vehicle owners, provides a total of up to $145 million that will be distributed to help cover their out-of-pocket expenses, including reimbursement for insurance deductibles, increased insurance premiums, and other losses. This settlement does not address the separate lawsuit brought on by insurance companies seeking reimbursement for the money spent replacing or repairing stolen vehicles. In other litigation news, a federal judge in Rhode Island has sided with courts throughout the nation and thrown out one hotel group's claims that its insurer should cover the $100 million in losses the company suffered during the COVID pandemic. The judge says the hotel failed to demonstrate that they suffered, quote, direct physical loss or damage to their properties as required to obtain coverage. Businesses hit insurance companies with lawsuits nationwide in an effort to recoup financial losses brought on by the health crisis and government shutdowns. A COVID litigation tracker kept by the University of Pennsylvania Law School showed court rulings in a majority of states tipping toward the insurer. Until recently, the subject of artificial intelligence seemed a thing of science fiction films. But in just the past several months, generative AI, as it's called, has become a very hot topic. The emergence of chat, GPT, and other AI functions are now widely available, but they are not without risks. During a recent webinar hosted by the American Society of Association Executives, of which NAMIC is a member, Steve Smith, research professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and president-elect of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, warned that AI is by no means infallible, and that presents some real challenges. The issue of uh, misinformation is, is real. And, um, you know, the, the research community is continuing to work on, uh, on that, but um, that's not something that's going to go away. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, you, um, there's a tendency to ascribe uh, uh, intelligence to these tools uh, at a level of, you know, that, that there's this underlying understanding of the semantics of the world. And, and in reality, it's a, a statistic statistical model that's been built by, you know, uh, uh, training on uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, pages of text or, or, or things. And uh, it, it, it has no real understanding of, of, of what is, but it's learned uh, correlations and associations and it can put those to amazing use. Smith says while AI offers tremendous opportunities to streamline your time, 
it's not going to replace what employees have to do. It's important for associations to keep in mind there are several legal issues that could affect data privacy, intellectual property, insurance, discrimination, and tort liability when it comes to members, other volunteers, and staff. Well, the official start of hurricane season is June 1st, and Colorado State University predicts a slightly below average year with only 13 named storms and major hurricanes making landfall. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldridge talks with Guy Carpenter's Mark Hope about how hurricane outcomes have changed over time and provides insight on other weather trends impacting the industry. Today on Unscripted, we have Mark Hope. Uh, Mark is a senior vice president at Guy Carpenter, where he serves as a subject matter expert on wildfires and also hurricane storm surge risk in particular. Uh, today, uh, we thought we'd have a conversation with Mark to, to, to talk a little bit more specifically about the hurricane risk, kind of what we see in the upcoming season, uh, what we might anticipate on that front. Hopefully, uh, there's more words in this podcast than there are hurricanes. Um, but we shall see. So thanks for joining us today, Mark. Yeah, thank you very much, Neil. I appreciate the offer and happy to uh, do some chatting today. Great. So start kick things off here with us. Just tell us a little bit about your background in catastrophe analysis and, and kind of how you found yourself working in the insurance industry. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I've been with uh, Guy Carpenter for a little bit over six years at this point, kind of in a, in the same natural peril advisory role working with Hurricane Storm Surge and uh, wildfire as well. I've been, I would say, in the industry broadly about 10 years and almost 10 years to the day, actually. I looked it up the other day. I started um, in cadastral model development about 10 years ago with, um, at the time, AIR and bots and then now Verisk. Um, I'll take it back maybe one step behind that, though. My um, graduate work in school, I, I actually, my undergraduate is um, civil engineering, and I realized I wanted to go to graduate school. I want to work on the big problems. Usually civil engineering has a lot of infrastructure. People think buildings and bridges, um, but I want to big, work on those big large scale, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar problems. Um, what I fell into actually in graduate school was doing hurricane storm surge modeling. And this is in, um, not quite the immediate, but the years after Hurricane Katrina. And was fortunate to work with a university and a professor that was very involved with the recovery um, in Louisiana um, and got to work with a little bit with Hurricane Katrina, a whole lot with Hurricane Ike, which affected the Texas coast in 2008, um, and also Hurricane Sandy in 2012, which, which was a particularly eye-opening event, I think, from a lot of perspectives, from insurance perspective, from a meteorological perspective, um, from a modeling perspective. Um, and so whether or not, whether I liked it or not, I got to work on some really large, impactful events. And during that time in graduate school, um, picked up an internship with an insurance company doing some bespoke storm surge modeling for their exposure. Got a little bit of, um, I would say, a taste of kind of how meteorology and modeling is used within insurance and by extension reinsurance. And, and really like that idea of using this highly technological, um, these you know, complex models for some unique and helpful business purposes as well. And so it, I never would have thought 15 years ago, maybe when I was in graduate school and certainly even before that an undergraduate, I'd be working in insurance or reinsurance. I probably couldn't have defined reinsurance or maybe even insurance at any point 20 years uh -huh. ago. Um, but uh, yeah, happy to be be part of that industry now and see, see how it's evolved and changed just in the 10 years that really I've been involved with it. Well, you certainly found the place with some big uh, costly problems uh, in terms of that we could work on to solve. Uh, and um, so why don't we start a little bit. Colorado State University does their predictions uh, for the hurricane season every year. Uh, I believe we've got those numbers out now. They predict six hurricanes and 13 
name storms. Um, so what, what, what do you feel about that? You know, with your background, what, what changes or trends are we seeing? You know, are there any new shifting trends for insurers to be aware of as we head into hurricane season? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think um, I've seen that prediction of, of a, a below average season. Um, I, I like these early season predictions, um, although I, I, I don't want to I don't want to speak poorly of, of the predictions. But like in there, to be fair, they're, they're, they're usually quite accurate. I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not denigrating the accuracy of them. Um, but right. It's what actions do we take based on these? Right. Knowing above average or knowing below average is, is comforting or maybe a bit discomforting. But it's hard to, to say what a business decision is. Now, I think there's plenty of value in, in knowing what we may see over a season. Um, and even ahead of this, I looked up, I think over the last decade or so, the average average error on these forecasts in terms of number of storms is it's two to three, which is frankly pretty good. Right. When we're talking yeah. about such a massively complex system. Yeah. The, the, I think the challenge is right. What, which of those, and it's possible to actually say this, but which of these two or three are the ones that they miss, right? If it was last year's Hurricane Ian, it feels like a big miss. If it's yeah. a, a storm last year that I frankly maybe can't even remember the name because it was an off the shore sort of tropical storm, it, it, it's it's all right. So I, I, it's hard to say. I and mean, even this, I, I went and looked up one of the individual scientists at CSU, and even he made a comment after they published this that you know we're seeing El Nino developing that usually suppresses hurricane. Um, uh, activity, which is why the below average uh, prediction. But sea surface temperatures are trending warmer. And, and, and I always say, and this is true for almost every peril, you, you can have a fairly accurate medium to long-term prediction. All it takes is that one, right? All it takes is that just one span of a few days or a week or so over the Atlantic where you know, there's no dust, there's minimal wind shear, the sea surface temperatures are high, those steering currents are in the right direction. All it takes is, I don't want to say a momentary, but a very short confluence of those perfect conditions. And even in sort of when the broader environment is um, not conducive to these events, all it takes is that sort of that that one convergence of, of unfortunate uh, attributes to get that storm going. So it's I, right. It feels good to know and think like, OK, we, we can expect it to be below average, um, but we never know until it's December yeah. usually. What, what I've appreciated, kind of the, the changing trends that I've seen, um, and maybe with these predictions, it's with the predictions, but then also with the individual storms, too, is that we have these beautiful, elegant, complex models to predict these incredibly complicated um, physical phenomenon. And there's a ton of uncertainty um, involved with these, right? If you picture the the cone of uncertainty, right, that the National Hurricane Center publishes, I I might get the number exactly wrong, but there's a there's an appreciable amount of events that you know end up outside the cone, um, and that's why they have that cone. And it never really struck me until I read a, a paper maybe last year about just how hard it is to communicate, particularly uncertainty, um, to residents and to to managers, to insurance companies, to emergency managers, those people. So I've I'm been very happy to see, particularly over the last five years, um, how much more, I would say, digital ink is being used um, to explain the uncertainty to say, you know, we have kind of the standard cone, but this event in particular, Hurricane XYZ, it's being really unpredictable, either in track or in the magnitude of winds or in the magnitude of storm surge. And I really like that because you always unfortunately hear stories after these events of, well, I've, you know, I've lived in this place on the coast for 50 years and, you know, they all, I've, I've lived through so many hurricanes and they're never as bad as, as they say they are. Um, and people are, are getting hurt or losing their homes because maybe they, that uncertainty is just has not been well communicated in the past. So as, um, 
I mean, I, I think of myself as a hazard scientist and maybe a bit of as, as an amateur statistician, um, but I'd really like seeing, the, you know, the discussion of uncertainty and understanding, you know, a very tiny shift in the track north or south of Tampa Bay could have a huge effect on how high or how low the storm surge in Tampa Bay may be. Sure. Um, so seeing that, it, it brings a, hard to say it brings comfort because, it, you know, we're talking about catastrophes, which are um, by their nature, you know, negative impacts, but, but. I think the communication around the impacts and the communication around these um, is something that I have seen evolve kind of in lockstep with improved modeling of, of winds and tracks and storm surge, right? As technology advances, computational resources become um, greater and more powerful. We're able to do things at a better resolution, um, but it doesn't matter if we, we can create a perfect hurricane model, but if we can't communicate those results effectively to the people that know to, that need to know those results, um, I don't want to say it's completely worthless, but but it, it the impact of those models is significantly diminished. Yeah, no doubt it's a good point. Let's talk a little, little bit about models themselves. Uh, as you mentioned, they're better in some regards. Some people would still say they're lacking, uh, maybe because they're models and they're not actually like what is going to happen with certainty. Uh, there there yep. is all of that level of uncertainty that comes with them, um, and we see that. Uh, certainly play out. So, you know, spend a minute here on, on the models themselves. You know, what what role do they play in terms of the assessment of these major events, and and you know, uh, just just the sort of state of the modeling world as we as we sit here today. Yeah, sure. So, I, um, I'll say I, I come from maybe a kinder place to to the cat models and others, and based on my experience in the industry and, and knowing. Lots and lots of smart people that that build these models, um, and, and you know they get talked about negatively occasionally. I think you know when it, when there's a big model miss is a, is a big topic yeah. of conversation within the industry, right? Um, but I think that the challenge, like what what I really like about these models, is they tell us the really big where's and the really big how muches. I, I think they they tell us the, you know they're they're really good at predicting the extreme events of. You know how many tens of billions of dollars might be lost. What is what are the wind speeds that we could expect over certain areas? What are the water depths we could see over certain areas in terms of storm surge inundation? They're really good at the, I would say kind of defining that envelope of of what are some of these worst case scenarios. The challenges become I think when you get you maybe sometimes literally get into the weeds with these models when you're looking at results on an individual structure basis, maybe even on a neighborhood basis. Um, these are processes, I'm thinking in my mind, both of hurricane storm surge, wildfire, hurricane wind to some extent too, right? The um, the physics that drive these models are, you know, it's sometimes at a, a meter or a foot scale, kind of even less than that. They're at very, very micro scale. And these the model companies, by definition, they want to provide a unified kind of singular solution for a region, for a country, for a continent. Um, and frankly, the, the computational resources, unless you're the Department of Energy, basically, the model, the entirety of even Florida at a one meter resolution just, just does not exist, or it would take 10 years to develop and publish the model. And then of course, by the time it's published, it's already out of date. Yeah. So there, there's a bit of, um, you know, the, the computation side of things is always gonna, I think, hold, hold back the accuracy, particularly on an individual kind of, what do you think about individual exposure, individual structure basis. But I do think they provide us a good idea of, you know, what I, I almost, I, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, the the lower frequency events, the, those really big outliers, the one in 100, 500, 1,000, maybe they don't get exactly that landfall right. Maybe they don't get exactly that wind speed right. But I, I do take to heart that I think the losses that they're producing because they're, you know, they were talking about 
tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of locations being affected. Um, it's the law of large numbers, which what kind of catastrophe models rely on a bit. Um, and so I think you know the the big the big where is where are we going to get that one billion, ten billion, fifty billion dollar event? We're, they're pretty good at defining that now. One, two, three, Main Street and the affected area. I, I would have a little bit less confidence just because there's so much uncertainty and the vulnerability and the hazard yeah. at that individual location. Yeah, that 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 you hit an interesting point there, and one that I didn't really realize, I guess, until a few years ago, and which is the sort of challenges of just keeping current data in the models and the the math problems that those represent. And um, yeah, I, I've learned a bit about that myself here. I didn't. I don't think I ever really appreciated the 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 lag of data input that some of the models have and and the, the challenges there. And I'm not sure many other people uh, really realize it either, but it's certainly a limitation to some degree. Yeah, and particularly, um, I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll uh, readily admit my my expertise at this point is is certainly now wildfire, and that that data lag is really interesting for wildfire because wildfire is um. It's an it's I mean, all all perils are environmentally dependent, but right. You need something to burn for wildfire. And when yeah. right right after a wildfire occurs, there's nothing to burn. So, so it, it's this very funny um, kind of counterintuitive thing where right after a fire, fire risk is very low. I don't I, I never said anything zero risk that that'd be uh, bad as a risk manager, risk modeler. But right after a fire, there's there's nothing to burn. It takes months, years, sometimes decades for um, ecosystems to recover. So right there, I mean, developing a wildfire model, right? It's you know you're talking about collecting satellite data, particularly if you're talking on a continental scale. It takes year, months, if not years, to collect the satellite data, process and clean that data, publish that data, and that's just from probably the governmental side that that's producing that data set. And then you want to ingest that into your model development. Model development takes a couple of years. Deployment of that model takes some time. So it, it, it's it's this curse of no matter how in most cases, particularly for catastrophe models, there's always going to be this year's lag in terms of the yeah. data. And it's I, I don't want to say it's unimportant for other perils, but wildfire, it's, it's a really interesting one because you could have an extremely high-risk region. Unfortunately, a fire may sweep through there. The risk is significantly diminished for that region, at least temporarily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and how to represent that within uh, particularly stochastic catastrophe model is, is a particular challenge. Yeah, yeah, wildfire is particularly inter interesting, whatever word you want to use there, but it's it's more about not predicting where they've been, uh, but where they might be going, right? And what where may, may be the area that has attributes that is going to be particularly successful to a wildfire now, um, not, you know, it's different than, than other storms where you see wind patterns and things that, you know, hurricanes kind of always go this particular area. Yes, um, yep. You know, wildfire is more about where where are the conditions right at the moment for it. And then that may change. And that, that it's got to be very complicated to put into a model. Yeah, it's um wildfire in particular. From, from where a fire is going to happen, it's... <laughs> I don't want to say it's easy, but a lot of times if you look at a map of a really high fire activity region, I'm thinking of um, parts of the West, particularly California, wildfire footprints, and they're almost like puzzle pieces. Um, again, because of that effect where if a fire, like, you, know, you have a couple fires burning, maybe I'm thinking of like a sandwich here, fires burning on, on mm -hmm. sort of two, two sides, they burn, but maybe they don't connect. So they've eliminated a lot of the fuel, but in the middle there, you, you have a lot of unburned area. So when a fire starts, it's going to burn that unburned area and it reaches what's recently burned. There's just not as much fuel. And so 
looking at those fire maps, you can kind of, it's, I don't want to say it's obvious, but it's clear what's unburned and that is going to burn at some point because you have this historical buildup of fuel. Um, but you still need those right conditions. You still need that ignition, whether it's natural via lightning or, or human caused from a variety of reasons. Right. We also need that ignition during a period of, uh, where it's been low humidity, where it's been low precipitation, where it's hot, potentially um, windy as well. And, and so again, it, it, we talked about sort of that, that bad in the sense of catastrophe, but good for the sense of the hazard, that a confluence of conditions. Wildfire is a perfect example of, you know, it's it's hot and dry for a lot of the summer in parts of the West. And you certainly do see yeah. fire activity. Well, you don't really see those really catastrophic fires until maybe, particularly in California, when you get that um, wind season in the fall where you get the Diablo winds or Santa Ana winds. Right. And so it's, it, it's again, it's, it's that combination of, of conditions that just, it's, it's that, maybe even for wildfire, it's only a couple hours where, you know, you have 70, 80 mile an hour winds through some mountain passes. But it's been low humidity, it's been a dry summer, and you have a cigarette butt, you have a lightning strike. It, it's just that it's that perfect storm of bad conditions that are that are conducive to catastrophic perils. Yeah, have you looked much yet at the sort of wildfire risk in going into this season? Now we feel like the western states got a lot of rain over the winter time here. Um, at least, you know, luckily in that in that regard, at least California and Oregon, Washington seem to have plenty of water. Uh, from a, from a rain perspective in, in, over the winter here, have you looked any at all about what, how, you know, how long lasting is the benefit of that moisture from a fire perspective or anything in that regard? Well, we we have actually. That's a great question. Um, it, it's it's sadly inconclusive, I would say, because I I certainly thought a lot, you know, in maybe my my kind of linear thinking, be like, okay, a ton of rain, like you're gonna you're gonna bounce back. California's had fantastic drought recovery over the last few months obviously thanks to all the rain and snow um and so we went back and looked maybe about 30 to 40 years or so to look into looking at okay when when california or certain parts of california actually we looked at the whole west but when a certain region gets this much precipitation basically december through about april what does the subsequent fire season look like from may that subsequent may through the end of the year um, and it really, the, the signals were kind of all over the place. It was very interesting. Some areas actually saw increased precipitation resulted in depressed fire behavior, which is kind of the more intuitive thought you may have. And some regions had increased precipitation actually increased the fire behavior. Um, our hypothesis is that some regions, when you get a lot of rain, you get a lot of plant growth coming right back, like particularly finer fuels. Maybe in some of those drier desert areas, things green up. California super bloom. If you go on Instagram, you see people in these oh, beautiful, yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. mountains of wildfire, wildflowers, right. right? Wildflowers can sometimes later result in wildfires because it's, you know it's, yeah. it's a boom of fuel. Um, it, it, it's um this is a simplistic answer. It's complicated, right? In some areas, uh, like in moisture limited environments, more precipitation means more fuel. Uh, in, in other areas, it's just you maybe that you're not going to get that immediate response of fuel. There's always going to be a fire season in California, um, really in the west, western part of the continent. And again, I think what we're learning is that particularly in the more drier areas, particularly the southwest where it gets hot and dry, it's always going to be hot and dry. And yeah. so you're always going to have at least some days that have those particularly nasty fire weather conditions. And it's it's a bit irrespective of the last year's precipitation, because, again, it's just those those those, those hours long windows of high winds, low humidity, high temperature, low precipitation. That's what drives it. And now maybe you won't get a, you know, a million plus acre burn sort of season. You might not get the really, really outlier seasons, 
but it's not the outlier seasons that necessarily drive catastrophic loss that insurance companies worry about. It, it's the individual event um, that that maybe keeps us up. And I obviously we're concerned with those big nasty seasons, but it, it's it's that one event in an otherwise inactive season that could still drive huge huge losses. Yeah, and unfortunately, the other reality, of course, and the difficulty in in any of the <clears throat> issues around modeling this phenomenon, particularly fires. Uh, is we just have so much more stuff and people uh, in the areas where they used to not be. Yep. Um, and, you know, that that's just the way it is. We have more people in the country. They have to live somewhere. People like to live in places where the weather's nice. Um, and it happens to be that those places are the ones that are, you know, either fire prone or hurricane prone. And we just have so much more structures in these places now. Um, that, that makes it even more challenging to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah, again, wildfire is a unique one where exactly as you said, right, it's um, you look at, you know, we talk about the wildland urban interface, which is that sort of that transitional space between your true wildlands, your forests, your prairie lands, your grasslands and your, your urbanized areas. Um, and right, th those are kind of fundamentally what's most exposed to wildfire. And so if you think about, um, like you look at Los Angeles, I mean, Los Angeles, I, I, should, I shouldn't say Los Angeles, but the metro area of Los Angeles, right? The wildland urban interface is kind of a ribbon. It, it, it's almost like, if you think about a perfectly circular city, it's kind of a bullseye. You have your downtown area that's hyper urban, transitioning to slightly less urban, and then you have your wildland urban interface ringing in that area. Um, as you grow and grow and grow in Los Angeles, that ribbon just becomes longer and longer and longer because it's it's it you know we're growing further out and further out, and this is true of every city. And so, right, I I get it. Uh, wildland urban interface is beautiful. You want to be able to look out your window and see wildlife yeah. and see wildlands. Um, and unfortunately, that's where some of the really high value structures are as well. Um, and so, it's been this really nasty. I don't want to say feedback cycle, but process over the last 30 years or so, where you see you know. Urban areas are growing, particularly suburban areas are growing. Um, you know, people are building nicer, nicer homes. More people want to be a part of that. But people also ca cause more fires too, right? Sure, the wildfires yeah, are yeah. wildfires are really the kind of the unique peril um, where I, Mark, could unfortunately start a billion dollar event in a million acre fire. Yeah. I can't start a hailstorm. I can't start right. uh, a hurricane. <laughs> um, and, and so there, there's a bit of um. Uh, almost like a sociological message that, and I, I love using Smokey Bear <laughs> in any presentation I give, but, but he, he's a really important yeah. figure in, in wildlife re wildfire resiliency sure. because you don't put out your campfire. You could be found liable or you could be the cause of a really, really yeah. nasty event. And so it's, it's this very strange balance of, you know, changing fire conditions for various reasons, but then also changing conditions of ignitions and changing conditions of exposure. And it, it, it's this very, it's a much more, um, societal peril than I think I would have appreciated five, 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, I agree. And, and certainly becoming more and more front and center as we wrestle with insurance policy questions and how to deal with these kinds of things. So, yep, absolutely. So listen, uh, I think next month, uh, we're recording this in May. So uh, this must be in June, I think you're going to be uh, appearing again on NAMIC's uh, Severe Weather Summit. Uh, you and another colleague of yours, Guy Carpenter, are going to talk about um, some of the catastrophe issues, people can learn more there. Uh, so just maybe give folks a preview of that. We've maybe have covered some of it already here today. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk a bit about next month in June um, about, I would say, what lessons learned from recent catastrophes. And this is going to be a little bit more focused 
certainly on the individual events that we're going to discuss, but on the 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 action, I would say the the response of the individual structures that experience these events, and then the responses within these communities following these events. And so uh, we're we're still talking outline a bit, but I, I know we're going to discuss um, Hurricane Ian, the fire uh, campfire in Paradise, California, uh, the Marshall Fire in Colorado, and even um, this is a little bit outside of the the realm here, but the uh, Fort McMurray Fire in Alberta, Canada in 2016. Those yeah. the reason for those four. We, we've visited those four locations within about the last year or so to sort of understand you know what what were the mechanisms of damage how are the communities changing and covering and responding to these events um and it's been really really fascinating to do some of this on the ground reconnaissance i, I think what we the takeaway from florida and hurricane ian was we we, we did a, a really long day of driving around this is a couple months after the event even but just trying to understand, you know, what what areas were affected by water, what areas were affected by wind, and trying to see what you know what the structure response was. And what we found over and over again, which is really interesting, was really newer structures um, responded much better. They they you, they noticeably less damage, which which is not particularly surprising, right? We expect structures become less resilient as they age. But to us, and this is still there's still some ongoing analysis here, but the efficacy of building codes is yeah. that maybe the simple answer there, the simple and yeah. obvious answer. But but to truly see it in practice, to see you know two very very similar homes of similar construction type, and maybe really the only difference was you're built, but quite literally next to one another, um, and to see the difference in damage. I I don't want to say it was encouraging. I don't want to put any sort of positive spin on the destruction or the, yeah. the loss of someone's structure, but but it was it was it was encouraging in the sense of it, you know there are ways that we can build our structures to be more resilient to this. Um, and even similar in, in um, Fort McMurray, Alberta, um, that one is one where more of a, it's a community response and how they're truly changing the landscape around the community, how they're rebuilding the, the neighborhoods that were affected, um, kind of the difference in scales, right, between, uh, you know, hurricane wind is really a, a single structure scale resiliency. But for something like wildfire, even hurricane storm surge, there's a much broader, those big ideas, right, we talked about at the top of, right, how do you design a community to be more resilient to something like wildfire, hurricane storm surge? Um, so it, it's, um, you, you hate to do those damage surveys after the events. It's um, pretty, you know, it's it's physically and emotionally exhausting to, to see the recovery happen and to see destroyed structures. Um, but it's um, it's something really important to do because we, you know, to collect that data, it's meaningful data um, and understand what works, what doesn't work, how can we design and build better going forward. Yep, no doubt. NAMIC and the insurance industries spend a lot of time and, and treasure and blood, sweat and tears trying to uh, enact new um, resiliency measures, whether it be building codes in Florida or other measures around the country. And, and, and they work. They just simply do. Um, yep, but, absolutely. but they're, you know, they come at a little bit of a price, but ultimately speaking, you know, if we're going to, if we're, if we're going to have the policy questions of we are indeed going to build houses and condos in places where we have lots of hurricanes, then we better build them in a way that's going to withstand that. Um, and, and we've kind of gotten to that point in, in some places and that's a good thing, but certainly been a priority of ours over the years. Well, listen, Mark, thank you for your work. Um, thanks for joining us today. Interesting set, set of topics here. Uh, look forward to the Severe Weather Summit. Uh, we'll, we'll make another appearance here. And uh, thanks to Guy Carpenter for the partnership with NAMIC on these issues. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you'll join us again on June 14th when we're back with more insurance news and perspective. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.